Dave pulls it up in just a minute. Uh, you'll see that uh, we were scheduled today to look at Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 49 and going on through verse 59, but we're not going to make it quite that far. Uh, today, we're just going to look at this beginning portion, verses 49 to 53. If you have an ESV, you can probably find that on page 872. Today, reading Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 49, continuing to verse 53. And Jesus here is continuing the conversation that he, uh, he was having last week when we read, specifically with his disciples. We'll see, Lord willing, next week that he'll turn and speak to the crowds. But here again, Jesus is speaking specifically to disciples, to believers. And so this is a message for us. It's a message for the church uh, to consider what does it mean to live in the world where the Lord says he has come to cast fire on the earth? What does it mean for disciples to live in that fire and in those flames, in a sense? Today, Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 49 and reading to verse 53. Before we read these words together, won't you join me and we'll pray and seek the Lord's blessing upon them. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you have taught us about Jesus Christ, your son, whom you sent into the world, and we can know him through your word. Oh Lord, you expose us and our hearts so that we would know ourselves through your word as well. And so we pray that today as we come, we would not only read and try to wrestle with the text and try and figure out what you're telling us about yourself, but we would be laid bare by your living word, that you would divide us uh, to the very heart and to the core, to our souls, that you would be the one who, cutting us open, would put us back together again by the gospel. Oh Lord, we pray that you would do a work as you work in your people today by your Holy Spirit. Help us, O oh Lord, to see and understand more of your Son and to trust in him more in this life we live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 49 and reading through verse 53. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. You think that I've come to give peace on the earth. No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together this morning. Just about uh, every weekend of his early 20s, my brother-in-law spent uh, most evenings, most weekend evenings, behind his house tending a fire, uh, that burned with green flames. Uh, Caleb was just beginning uh, his career as an electrician, and he worked for a company that mostly did remodeling and rewiring of older homes north of Pittsburgh, and every time uh, he finished a job, he would ask permission from his boss to keep whatever wire they had removed from the house. And this he would uh, haul home, and he'd set it aside until the weekend came, and, and then he would grab a lawn chair, and he would light a fire, and he would take the leftover wire, and he would pile it as high as he could uh, up on top of the flames. And you may be aware uh, that copper, when it burns, burns with an emerald tint. And so whenever the flames turn from orange to green, he knew that that meant that the job was just about done. 
by then all of the insulation had had melted away, all the cloth and the paper had been consumed, and what was left was only bare metal. And so in the morning, Caleb would, would rescue whatever remnants there were, and he would uh, pile them uh, behind the house into this growing mound of bare wire stored out back. It was a lot of work uh, just to get a little bit of wire, but really it's the sort of hassle that you don't mind much when you're 21, and, and maybe you can make a few bucks. And in fact, he did. Uh, by melting down all of the insulation and exposing the wire. By the end of that first summer, he was able to fill his truck several times and take it to the scrapyard and came away with a few thousand dollars. Now, uh, this actually is a pretty familiar picture, whether we're working with wire or any other kind of metal and thinking about it. In several places, the Bible shows us the refiner's fire. The fire that strips away everything that is useless, burns up everything that is dross, and preserves a treasure that is able to survive through the flames. In fact, it's one of the ways that we know the God of Scripture. The Bible tells us that God is holy. It tells us that God is love. It also tells us that God is a consuming fire. And so when the prophets in the Old Testament foretold Jesus coming, the Messiah who would come into the world, they saw him in their prophetic eye. They saw him coming with cleansing flames. He's like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap, writes Malachi. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And so we're prepared, in a sense, when Jesus shows up and he announces that his ministry is one of bringing fire to the earth. We expect it. Like Father, like Son, Jesus has come into the world to redeem his people to himself, but that redemption goes and passes through difficulty. It passes through flames and through affliction, through persecution often, and through patiently bearing our cross as we follow the Savior. And Jesus says, actually, that's why he came into the world, to light that fire, to kindle those flames. He came to save sinners, and he came to ignite the fire that separates his people from a dying world. Now, accomplishing that work, says Jesus, was his greatest desire. That's our first point today, when we see in this passage Jesus' desire to ignite this flame and to go through the suffering, really, that the Lord has sent him into the world to endure. Look at Jesus' uh, desire when we see verses 49 and 50 again. Take a look there. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Those are personal statements. If you've ever wondered what Jesus felt, how he thought about what it was like to become the sacrificial lamb of God, this is your answer. This is getting a chance to peer into the heart of our Savior. What was it that, that drove him? What was it that motivated him? He says, I can't wait until these things are accomplished. His desire was to fulfill the suffering work that the Father had sent him to accomplish. And we need to unpack the statements in these two verses a little bit, because Jesus actually is talking about two separate realities in verses 49 and 50. In verse 49, when he speaks of this fire that he casts upon the earth, it's really a summary of the result that his ministry will have among humanity. It's parallel to the statement that he makes in verse 51, when he begins to speak about bringing division. What is it that Jesus' ministry will produce among humanity? It's going to produce division. It will produce animosity. 
Even families, he says, will be divided right down the middle on the basis of what we believe about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. We're going to come back to this idea of division, but for now, notice Jesus longing for the day that the fire would already be burning. He looked forward to these things. He desired that that refining fire would already be lit among his people to separate out those who belonged to him and those who did not. But notice also Jesus' desire in verse 50 for the suffering that was going to make that division meaningful. That's what he's talking about when he mentions this baptism that he is to be baptized with. He's speaking of his suffering and his death on the Roman cross. We know this from the other Gospels. That's the point of Mark chapter 10, actually, when Jesus warns his disciples that they're going to suffer at the hands of men just like he will suffer at the hands of men. They also will be put to death as he would be put to death. Mark chapter 10, verse 39, the picture that he uses to convey that message, he says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. He's speaking there of suffering. And then later in Romans chapter 6, Paul says that our water baptism now is a symbol that unites us to Christ and his death for sinners. It's a sign and a seal that reminds us that Jesus endured a baptism of suffering so that we can receive a baptism that proclaims salvation to us. So this suffering is the baptism that Jesus is talking about when he says that he is in distress until it is accomplished. Now don't misread that. His distress is not over the fact that it has to happen. His distress is over the fact that it hasn't happened yet. This is Jesus' great desire. This is his longing. Back in chapter 9, when we studied Luke's gospel, we read that Jesus set his face to go up to Jerusalem. That is, he turned himself knowingly, knowing exactly what he would face when he got to that holy city, knowing he would face persecution, he would face rejection, knowing that he would be flogged, knowing that he would be tortured, knowing that he would be put to death. And yet Jesus is facing that. He is charging in the direction of the cross. His entire being is straining toward the finish line that is stretched across Calvary. And we can forget that. We can assume, I think, if we're not careful, that Jesus approached suffering the way that we approach suffering. I don't know about you, but I uh, would rather avoid suffering at just about all costs. And that's the way that most of us live our lives. We will put off that dentist appointment if we think there's a chance we might have to get a root canal. We will bite our tongue. We will hide the truth if it will keep us from an uncomfortable conversation with somebody that we don't want to confront. We fill our sheds, we fill our garages with all sorts of contraptions and tools and machines to make yard work easier rather than harder. Have you ever wondered or or thought about how much of our lives are spent in trying to avoid suffering? And yet here's Jesus. And his burden is enduring every moment that keeps him from laying down his life as a substitute for sinners. Not that the suffering itself was was somehow desirable. Jesus wasn't a lunatic. There was nothing about about the pain, nothing about the death itself that was attractive to Jesus. And yet, he longed to go through with the baptism of suffering that had been appointed for him. I think this shows us something of the heart of our Savior. It shows us at least how much Christ longed to please the Father. 
That was the motivation for why Jesus was pushing so hard toward the cross, because as the divine Son of God, he came into the world determined to please the Father in all things. Obedience to his heavenly Father was the food and drink that sustained his soul. Psalm 40, verse 8, was a prophecy really about Jesus. David wrote there, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will. Jesus delighted to do the Father's will. It was his desire. He was pleased anytime the Father was pleased in him. And he lived his life seeking the pleasure of fulfilling God's will for his life and his ministry. So then what was God's will for Jesus' life and his ministry? It was his will to crush him. That's the way Isaiah says it. Chapter 53, it is the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. It was the will of the Lord to make his life an atonement for guilt. And this was the plan. This was the will of God before the foundation of the world was laid. Before the fruit ever found its way to Adam's rebellious lips, before sin and sinners multiplied on the face of the earth, this was God's plan, that he would send his son as a sacrifice for his people. And now as Jesus edges closer to the doorstep of Calvary, he declares how much he longs, how much he desires to fulfill the word of the Lord for his suffering. Folks, this means that there is no schizophrenic division between the Father and the Son. Sometimes we mistake that. Sometimes we think that that there is this angry, malevolent Father in heaven somewhere that has to be persuaded, has to be convinced against his better judgment that there are some people that are worth saving in the world and that Jesus comes in to save us from the Father. That's not how it is. Neither do we see here this reluctant sort of foot-dragging son who's being led by force all the way to Calvary. There is a unity here. There's a harmony between the Father and the Son. Jesus freely lays down his life to please the Father. It was his desire. It was his longing. And he also longed to suffer in order to save his people. That was the other motivating factor behind Jesus' desire, if we could think about it that way. John chapter 10 tells us that Jesus is the good shepherd. As the good shepherd, Jesus lays down his life for the sheep on their behalf, caring for them. Christ's desire was to lay down his life, he says, of his own accord. Nobody takes it from him. He lays it down of his own accord. He lays it down in order that he may take it up again. He lays it down in order to open the way for his sheep to find shelter in the pastures of God's forgiveness. But as we read the gospel, sometimes we can forget about that. We can be excited about the teaching that Jesus offers and about the miracles that he, he works, and we forget what's actually motivating him to go through with all this ministry, to, to set his face toward Jerusalem. Have you considered lately that this is what made the shame of the cross in some sense desirable to Jesus? That he was willing to lay down his life for the sake of his sheep. Have you considered, perhaps, when, when your sin confronts you, when, when Satan whispers in your ear that, that your sin is too great to be forgiven, have you considered lately, as one commentator wrote, that Jesus is more willing to save us than we are willing to be saved by him? 
that the initiative always comes from his direction, not from ours? Have you considered the fact that Jesus' voluntary sacrifice removes any chance for us to take pride in some sort of Christian heroism? To imagine that we've got some sort of saintly merit that makes us so indispensable to Jesus that we can twist his arm and make him take up our cause. That's not how the gospel works. Jesus didn't save us because he had to. Jesus saved us because he chose to. It was his desire. He willingly endured the flood of God's judgment so that you and I could receive the privilege of becoming God's children. Until that job was finished, that was Jesus' consuming desire. This is the fire that Christ endured on our behalf. And all of that makes a difference when we consider the fire that Jesus says he came to cast upon the earth. Now, in, in the rest of the verses, Jesus begins to pivot. He begins to speak not just of, of his own suffering, but of the hardships that his people endure because they're aligned with him. And it's only if we've understood Jesus' desire to suffer on our behalf that I think it'll keep us from, uh, from being uh, scandalized, in a sense, by having the wrong expectations of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so after Jesus teaches us about his desire, he begins to teach us and to prepare us for our division. This is our second point today. Jesus teaches us about our division, and he begins in verse 51 by correcting some of the false expectations of his followers. He asks the question, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? How would you answer that question? Maybe not knowing what you know now, maybe not looking over uh, you know, the last 2,000 uh, years of church history, maybe not having prayed for our brothers and sisters in Russia, what would, you, what would you answer if you were there, standing there with Jesus, instead of sitting there where you are at home? What would you think about what the, the Savior had come into the world to do? What if you didn't have the benefit of a fully formed New Testament? Was that what the Messiah had come to do? Was it to bring peace on earth, as the angels said? Did he come in so that every, every sword could be beaten into a plowshare, every, every spear could be turned into a pruning hook? Did he come in so that the wolf could dwell with the lamb and the lion with the fattened calf together? Was that uh, what he came to do? Well, of course that's what you would think that the Messiah had come to do. You would think that because that's exactly what Isaiah had prepared you to think in those quotes that I just read for you. That's how you would know, in fact, that the Messiah had come. He would, he would take his seat on the throne of his father David. He would decide disputes between the nations. He would usher in this golden age of shalom and, and prosperity and security for his people. And most of the Jews who were there were waiting for exactly that. No doubt many of the people in the crowd were waiting for peace that would come through a Messiah. Let's be honest, their expectations were not wrong. All those ideas of security, all those ideas of, of protection come from God's own lips, in a sense. They come through his prophets. This is what we've learned to expect from Jesus, and none of those prophets, uh, none of those promises have yet been revoked. That's why the New Testament goes on to teach us that we're still waiting. We're waiting for the fullness of the kingdom, where it will bring in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We're still waiting for the Prince of Peace to subdue the nations. 
We're waiting for that heavenly city where the tree of life will grow with leaves that are for the healing of the nations, says Revelation. This is how Christ's prophets prepare us to expect peace through his ministry. But we're still waiting. And while we're waiting, we can have peace with God. Christ himself is our peace, says Paul in Ephesians. We can have peace with God through faith in him. We can have peace one with another. He breaks down that wall of hostility between believers. We can have all sorts of peace. There's a sense in which, yes, Jesus has come to bring peace on earth, but there's also a sense in which he's come to bring division. He's come to kindle that fire that separates his people from a dying world. And we need to know that this fire is a fire of identification. The division that Jesus is speaking about is a division that marks out God's holy ones from those who refuse to accept the gospel. It's not a very popular message, even among Christians. We sometimes convince ourselves that Christianity is meant to be something like this big birthday party. And everybody's invited, and in fact, everybody gets their own cake and goes away with a few presents. And it doesn't matter who you are. And so we hype ourselves up for evangelism by telling ourselves, actually, that it's going to be easy. Who wouldn't want to become a Christian once they know what it's all about? Who wouldn't want to embrace this Savior who came to die for us? We tell ourselves, you know, being a Christian in the world, that's the way to to win friends, to influence people. People will, will like me more if I'm a Christian, if they know that I follow Jesus. At least that's what we'd like to believe. But we live in the real world, don't we? We live in the world where Jesus says we ought to be prepared to face division. Most often, division on the basis of who he is and what he's come to do. And you know what that division looks like. You know that division because I bet that at some level, your family looks a lot like the families that Jesus is describing in the next few verses. You've got that cousin or or that brother or that sister-in-law that you cannot have a substantive conversation with. You can only talk about the weather. You can only talk about sports. You can only talk about meaningless things in 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 an eternal sense. You can only talk about meaningless things because they think you're that religious nut. And they refuse to engage anymore. They simply write you off, and you know what it's like to face that division. Maybe you uh, came to Christ later in life. And you've got parents who raised you with a a good, solid, secular upbringing. Raised you to look at the world and be be critical of the things that you see. And now they're worried that you're filling their grandkids with all sorts of harmful ideas, teaching them about sin and, and salvation. And you probably believe in demons under the bed, don't you? Or maybe the other way around. Maybe you're the parent who raised the secular family. And you came to believe in the Lord later in life, and now your kids are grown and gone. And they think you're rather quaint. And any time you come with your advice, they say, I don't need to hear any of that. I don't need your religion or your advice. I don't need your Jesus. Saddest of all, perhaps, maybe you're the believing parent who raised the Christian kids. And now those kids are gone. And they followed the world, and they've left their faith behind. And you're sad for them, and it breaks your heart, actually, when you think about what they've turned away from. You're also sad for yourself, because in a sense, it feels like when they rejected Jesus, they also rejected you. They rejected every value you raised them with. 
And Jesus is telling us we'd better get ready because this is the world that we live in. It's the world where the gospel goes out and some people receive it as the word of life and other people think that it's foolishness. And there's a division that happens in the world. It happens in our neighborhoods. It happens in our friendships. It happens in our families. And then you can add to that all the violence and all the persecution that happens all around the world because some believe in Christ and many do not. And there's a division that happens in the world on the basis of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And actually, that's always been the case. Do you remember back in Luke chapter 3, John the baptizer came. He was the forerunner. He was the precursor to Christ. And he said, after me is going to come someone who's mightier than I am. He said, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. That's the picture that John gave to us. A sort of two-part process. First the threshing and then the fire. But Jesus here is saying, actually, the fire is part of the threshing process. The fire is how I divide my people from the world. How believers are divided from unbelievers. And he prepares us for that. Now, if you're, if you're witnessing that division in your family, maybe it doesn't make it sting any less. It does, at least, I help, uh, hope, help us to know that what we're experiencing in the world isn't a surprise to our Savior. He's prepared us for what life is really like. Sometimes following Jesus means walking with him, even though the people who are closest to us are determined to go in another direction. Following Jesus often means that Christians have to suffer the pain of a divided world. Now, as we fill out the picture of what's, what's happening here, I, I think it will help us actually to turn to the parallel passage in Matthew's gospel. If you have your Bibles, turn with me. It shows up in Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 34, and we'll read to verse 39. And Matthew actually gives us a little bit more of the conversation. He goes a little bit further. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning in verse 34. This is what our Savior says, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, without going ahead and preaching that passage all over again, I think we can say at least that Jesus knows our tendency to want to avoid suffering in the world. He knows that it happens with dentist visits, and he knows that it also happens in the way that we follow him and live as his disciples. And quite frankly, the division that we face on Jesus' account is just the kind of thing that most of us would rather avoid if we could help it, and you know how it happens. Sometimes it comes down to good old-fashioned people-pleasing. We want others to think well of us. We, We want to have an influence in the world. We want to advance our careers, whatever it is, and so we, we learn to maybe just make less of our faith. Maybe just stay silent when we ought to speak up. We learn to dodge that conflict by
by flying under the radar. Sometimes it comes down to people pleasing. But even if you are not naturally a people pleaser, it also happens because the people who often divide from us over Christ are the ones that we care most about in the world. They are, as Jesus says, our fathers or our mothers, our brothers, our sisters. Sometimes our children or our spouses who don't trust the Lord as their Savior. And we are tied to these people. They make an important part of our daily lives. And when we realize sometimes that allegiance to Christ might mean alienation from those people, well, that's when we feel that impetus to try and avoid that a little bit, to downplay, to lessen the impact that our discipleship will have on our human relationships, and you know how to do it. It comes very often through small compromises. You talk less about the church. You talk less about your faith and what it means to you. You bite your tongue when somebody tells a blasphemous joke. You, you go along with the world. When they call light darkness and darkness light. Or you, at the very least, you leave people with the impression that there's really a lot more gray than there is black and white when it comes to sin and salvation. In fact, you convince yourself, maybe then they'll think better of you. Maybe then they will accept you. And maybe they'll even want to know more about your watered-down, palatable version of Christianity. Maybe that's the way to have an impact for Jesus, by, by lessening how much you love him and want to follow him and the way that he makes you distinct from the world. There's just one problem with that, says Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. And the problem with taking that route to avoid our division over Jesus is that it leads to death. It leads to death because really it amounts to loving our relationships more than we love our Savior. It leads to death because it's just a squirmy attempt at self-preservation. It's our way of avoiding the pain of being aligned with Jesus, of being seen to be his. And that's not where life is to be found. Self-preservation. Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying that the fire that he came to cast upon the earth isn't an accident. It's not some afterthought. It is not some optional accessory to discipleship. In fact, this fire is the Savior's way of revealing exactly what he's doing in our lives by his Spirit. We naturally want to avoid suffering, don't we? We play both sides. We hide the truth. We do anything we can to preserve ourselves and our comfort. And that means that if we find that we are somehow willing to follow Christ, even when it's unpopular, even when it is divisive, where is that willingness coming from? Is it coming from our natures that love comfort so much? Is it coming from deep within our, our humanity that wants to just get along with everybody else? Well, it's something that proves that he's at work in us. You see, Jesus came into the world willing to be rejected for the sake of his people. And against all natural inclination, the Savior longed to lay down his life in order to please the Father. And this is what the fire shows us. When Jesus casts us into the refining flames, when he brings division into our life on the basis of what we believe about who he is and what he's come to do, it shows us that he is remaking us in his image. 
that he is burning off the dross of that comfort-loving nature that we all have by sin. He's making us more like the Savior. He's making us willing to suffer rejection for his sake, just like he was willing to suffer rejection for our sake. He's making us willing to lay down our lives and to take up our cross and to follow him even though it's not popular, even though other people won't think better of us because of it. He's showing us how we're willing to be counted as his, and that's what the fire is all about. It's focused for his disciples on revealing the life that we can only find by following Jesus. It's focused on on putting our eyes on Christ and not on ourselves. And so, brothers and sisters, I won't tell you that I'll pray that you will be spared the division that Jesus says he's brought into the world. But I will pray for you, and I hope you pray for one another and for yourselves, that when that fire comes, that when others divide from you, when others say, I don't want anything to do with you because you're a Christian, because you follow this Savior, because they think you're now small-minded and bigoted and somehow judgmental. The reality is that often Christians are judgmental just for the sake of being judgmental. We ought to be sorry for that, and, and we ought to repent where we need to, but when others separate because of the offense of the cross, I hope you're praying for yourself, and I hope you're praying for one another that the Lord would cause us to be faithful in those times. Because what he's doing is showing us his work in our lives. That's what this fire is all about. That's why Jesus desired that it would already be kindled, so that his people would be shown to be his people, so that we would see that we can't trust in ourselves, but that he does a work in us that we could never imagine to bring treasure out of all the dross that we bring into our discipleship. That's what this is about. I pray that that would show up in your life and that he would prove you faithful as he works through these things, we pray. Uh, Would you pray with me? Oh, gracious Lord and God, we pray that you would make us faithful. We thank you for the fires of division that you have brought into the world. We thank you that you are the one who calls us to go out bearing your reproach even though it may not be popular, even though others may divide from us because of you. We pray that we would not be afraid of being counted as yours. And through this, we would return all rejoicing and honor and praise to you because you are the one who has called us and given us by your spirit any trust that we have in you. And so we pray that you would work in us, that we would rejoice and worship you with our whole lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.